The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And joining us one last time in prison this week from the Wilder Ride podcast, Alan Sanders. Thanks a lot, everybody. I'm looking forward to having these capsules irradiated because I, I think I've done my time. I, I'm under the wire, right? I, once you go in, you don't get out. Come on, you know that. Oh, I, th- I thought I had a pardon. You guys showed uh, me that little uh, piece of paper. You said, here. Oh, come on. It, it, it takes a very special case for us to issue pardons here in Manhattan prison. Oh, I feel like I've just been duped. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are in minute 21, and this minute actually does indeed start with Hauk saying he'll give him that pardon paper to Snake when he gets back out of the prison. So, uh, as you both alluded to in previous minutes, a little bit of a snakiness there to Hauk as opposed to Snake himself. And the minute ends with Hauk briefing Snake as they walk down a hallway. So, our sort of mental chess match between Hauk and Snake across Hauk's desk comes to an end here at the uh, last 8, 9, 10 seconds or so of this minute, uh, the first eight, ten seconds or so of this minute are the end of that scene. We had Pliskin having one of his famous lines, call me Snake. Uh, I mean, we've just, we've analyzed this conversation between the two, uh, the last two minutes a lot. Is any Are there any final thoughts either one of you have uh, as we end this scene? I'm looking at some really archaic technical or a tech piece in the background. I'm thinking, is that a phone? <laughs> On the desk. Do you see that? <laughs> that sort of dates this picture. Everything else would be like, okay, it's purposely looking old school filing cabinet. It's got you know military framing and pictures. But nothing really sets it as necessarily a time frame until all of a sudden you go, oh, yeah, there's an 80s style white old cradle style handphone just on the desk. I see it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. It just stuck out to me. I'm like, oh, and we're in the 80s again. <laughs> it's always fun to watch movies that are postulating what the future will be like once you pass that year. Mm-hmm. It just... I think that's what I like about, because in the same year here, I think it's 81 when Blade Runner came out, maybe it was 82, Ridley Scott does such a great job with world building that they hold up visually 30 years later, you know, you can go back and go, wow, you know, he didn't hit everything, but, you know, phones don't look like, like, it, it's not this, like, John Carpenter's sort of like, I just throw a phone on the desk, where Ridley <laughs> Scott would have probably spent a whole bunch of time in the art department going, well, what do you think a phone would look like in 1997, you know? So, just a, a bit of difference in style direction. I mean, I love this movie, but you sense the difference of kind of the world building that is a Ridley Scott versus John Carpenter, which is more about just telling a fun story here. I mean, there's there's a there's 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 a, a an allegory here. It's obviously dystopian. We're supposed to kind of learn something about where is our government going, where are our our leaders taking us? You know, what makes for honor, what makes for a hero? But he's not world building, you know. Or you could argue yeah. that he is. I mean, there's the you know that it's a bit of a cliche in science fiction, in futuristic fiction that when you have an oppressive 
society that advancement stagnates and technology mm. stagnates. You know, you get in the Star Wars universe, the whole reason that one of the, the reasons that they were justifying why things in the prequels looked so much nicer and newer, even though it takes place before the original movies was well under the empire, everything stagnated, everything was shut down. Innovation was shut down in the planet of the apes, which the, I'm not talking about the movie, but the, the book itself the society reaches a point where just everything shuts down and they're still using cars and trucks from centuries ago because there's just no innovation anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think you could, you could see that here that this society is clearly the guy and, and it's an oppressive government. It's all about wars. There's and, and prison. And it, it, even though we don't see anything outside of New York City, it's, I think it's pretty obvious this is not a country that would be fun to live in. Mm. And when that happens, you know, you're still using phones from 30 years ago. I mean, they're still driving cars in Cuba from 40, 50 years ago, you know, and that's real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, speaking of other media, that shows that. I don't know if you guys have seen The Man in High Castle, which is on Amazon. But um, that's another dystopian uh, TV show, basically. But what's interesting is that it does have a really interesting juxtaposition because in it, it's uh, the Axis won the war. So Japan has taken over the Pacific states. Uh, Germany's taken over the East Coast. And part of the context there on, on the, the Pacific state side is that there's a, a little bit of a stagnation in technology Japan did not come out quite as well as Germany did. And they make that point in that uh, the the clothing was not progressed. And so while the East Coast has got, you know, cutting edge technology, uh, it's fashion forward. The West Coast really stagnated more in uh, the late 40s, early 50s. And so it, it still has that, even though the whole show is rather bleak, it still has that uh, aged technology. So I think that keeping things you know, rather analog here too, I think kind of speaks to that point because there isn't that sense of freedom and creation that comes from innovation. Well, it's funny you bring up that that series on Amazon because it's probably one of my other favorite authors that you would, he often gets that title, the father of cyberpunk, but Philip K. Dick. And there are so many of his short stories and novels that I've absolutely loved. And I just like that, that his, the way he saw the future and the way he saw where tech could take us it's 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 probably one of my favorite writers of all time. Here you go, well, recommendation. Yeah. Go read Philip K. Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't uh, is Blade Runner? Yep. Isn't that yes. part yep. of that too? And, uh, and yeah. Total Recall as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Blade Runner was originally called "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," and Total Recall was "We Can Re- We Can Remember It for You Wholesale." But he also did Minority Report. Um, uh, gosh, I can't even think off the top of my head. Uh, he did a lot, a lot of stuff. And it was all about how does technology go and interface with human beings? And, you know, how do you determine who's a human and what makes you human and what makes a memory a memory? What makes you real? And um, always, always playing with, the, you know, our, our preconceived notions of what we think is reality. Well, I'll tell you something that is real. 
this awesome table with awesome weapons on it. <laughs> nice transition back, sir. <laughs> you know what? I love this shot, but I hate the fact they use a fisheye lens. It always bugs me when I see this, where it's curving <laughs> the edges to, to fit everything in because of, for whatever reason, whatever lens they're using to try to keep everything in focus when they do this dolly shot. I hate the fisheye lens look. Well, let's go, th- let, let's go, let's, let's go down that fish hole. Fish hole? Ugh. <laughs> Fish, fish eye lens. No, no, fish hole stays. Fish okay, hole fish stays. Hole. Let's go down the fish hole and see what kind of weapons can get us out of this fish hole. So we've got a gun with a scope. We've got various pouches and holsters. For some reason, there's a belt on the, uh, on the table. I, I don't know why the belt has to be there. Three different types of throwing stars, I guess just because. Why have one... Three of the same kind when you can have three different kinds. An Uzi, a telescope, goggles, a walkie-talkie that looks like a kid's toy, some goggles. Oh, I said the goggles. Boy, I am—I really am in a fish hole right now, aren't I? <laughs> uh, some pills in little baggies. Some kind of L-shaped orange thing. I don't know what the hell that is. And uh, I'm going to say the last thing. Let's discuss all of that, and let's let's leave the tracer for its own conversation. Okay. Let's not include the tracer. Let's talk about everything else that's on the table. What's your impression of this totally awesome '80s movie weapons table? All right. Well, the first thing, and I don't know if you you were talking about the revolvers, but you've got speed loaders with the revolver with the you've got what looks like a three fifty seven magnum with the pouch next to it, and that pouch actually would go with that leather belt. So I guess they're showing you the individual accessories oh. if you wanted to put the belt ah. through the through the holster. And then you've got your speed loaders there. Um, then you've got, I don't know what those pouches are unless it's to hold your magazines, but they don't look, they don't look like magazines. They could be just generic pouches that you could put mags in them, maybe a, a telescopic lens or a scope. It is interesting to see just three <laughs> bags, one kind of square and two more rectangular, one more narrow than the other, followed by three elongated um, extra, extra mag uh, clips for that Uzi. So I think that that middle, that middle medium pouch is for the clips, and I think the right hand pouch is actually for the scope. There's like looks like there's a longer scope. Yeah, I would believe that. Maybe the other bag is for all the throwing stars. Oh, sure. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the the magazines themselves, those extra long ones, are certainly look like they would fit in the uh, the little handheld Uzi with the shoulder strap. And the Uzi has the shoulder strap and appears to have a holster as well. Yeah, because I, I, it just goes away as the holster's coming in. If you pause it, you can kind of see it. Um, I didn't know Uzis would have holsters, but maybe so. <laughs> hey, it's 1997. It's the future. Well, if you look at that holster, if you can pause it, it looks like there's something on the, on the edge that looks like it would hold a scope, or maybe that's where your telescope goes that's sitting next to the, the, the holster itself. Like you see a little round... Um, almost like a receptacle that would hold something oh. in, that, in the in on the front side of the of the holster. It yep. looks, yeah, it looks like it's the same size that would accommodate that. I mean, I guess it could be for the Uzi. I've just usually if it's got the shoulder strap, you're carrying it where it's like kind of hanging down from your shoulder by that strap. Um, but hey, you know, maybe. So then, do either one of you have any clue what the L-shaped orange thing with the dial in the middle of it is? I thought that was some kind of um, line, like, uh, I don't know if it's a filament or something, because you see there's a little ring that looks right. like it's at the very front of it, and I don't, I don't know if it's, like, filament or, like, fishing line or something that you would use to either, 
uh, if it's like real high tensile strength that you could hang from it, or if you needed to drop down, you could hook that as if you know, sort a la Batman. But I just oh. thought it was some kind of a, a almost like a, a reel of some high tensile strength fishing line or some kind of a, a of a synthetic wire. Yeah, I think that's probably a little more plausible. I perceived it as a grenade or some type of explosive, <laughs> and there was a pin. So, yeah, I, I think probably some type of uh, high tensile wire is probably a little more plausible. And you talked about the drugs. If, and again, this goes back to my sci-fi and cyberpunk background, I'm wondering if those are, quote-unquote, uh, some type of drug. I wonder if they're sort of like an enhancement or something to help, you know, an, a, like an augmentation drug to make you a little faster, keep you awake, because he's got he's to perform for 24 hours straight. Is it something to kind of keep him peak and sort of hopped up uh, and Basically, a lot of our special forces will do the same thing when they're getting ready to enter a combat situation. We've got various drugs that our, our, our elite service members will take to keep them sort of on edge and crisp. And they also take anticoagulants before they go into battle. So that way, if they get shot, their blood is already sort of thicker than normal to help keep it from uh, bleeding out before they can um, patch themselves up. Oh, that's good to know. You know, a, a bevy of different drugs, a cocktail of drugs going into a, a, a firefight of, or some kind of a battle situation is certainly something anybody in the special forces or SEAL teams or any of those elite fighting squads would be used to. I'm also wondering if some of those pills might be uh, antibiotics or you know, something if he's exposed to any kind of neurogen, toxins, anything like that that would help inoculate him so that he wouldn't be affected by them. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot here. So I'm wondering if some of this might be allocated for the president as well, in case he oh, gets yeah. him, you know, cause I would think if you were just going in for 24 hours, maybe you take three or four packets with you, depending, cause they all look pretty uniform. Like here's, here's a, here's like a first aid packet. We just give to people who have to go in, but because there looks like, I don't, I don't know, there's like a dozen of them here. I presume that it's, it's multiple for multiple people. It could be, and it's just one of those things like a med pack. If you're just going to stuff it, you know, they're they're small. They don't take up a lot of space. They can fit with the with the Chinese throwing stars in the square pouch. So, I mean, really not taking up a lot of room. Uh, you know, one of these. I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but it looks like, and I don't think he uses them in the movie. This is weird because I don't remember him. But the like, the goggles. Well, the yeah, I, I'm I. I can't remember off the top of my head if they use them. I know they do make an appearance later in the movie in an important scene um, when they believe that Snake has been taken out. The bad guys send the goggles back to Hauk with like spikes or nails or something like that shoved into them to sort of imply Snake's, Snake's been caught and is dead. So I don't remember him wearing them, but that they they do have a purpose story wise later on. And then, of course, an old fashioned walkie talkie, because that's how we communicate now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that just that's that is that was a dollar ninety nine at a Toys R Us. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, it's 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 a fun array of gear to send somebody in behind the wall of this maximum security prison. Yeah, this table is basically this is. You know, the 80s movie always had the hero to the montage of getting ready. The Schwarzenegger and Stallone movies of the music and the close-ups of getting the guns cocked and the, and the knives stuck into the, the straps and everything like that. And we don't have that in this movie. We have this table pan instead, basically. Yeah. 
Serves the same function, but without being the montage. And so then we get to the tracer. And Snake picks it up. He, he picks... There's so much cool stuff on this table, but I guess for story reasons, this is the thing he notices and he decides to pick up. I mean, if I'm at that table, that's probably the last thing I would be picking up, but okay. And Hauk notices his interest in it, and he says it's a tracer that sends a radio signal for 15 minutes, push the button to be tracked, just like Leningrad, but they added something, a safety catch. Now... You know, we do these movies by minute shows because we love these movies and we're also able to goof on them when necessary. And this thing with the tracer and the safety catch has always been to me possibly the dumbest thing about this movie. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, it only lasts 15 minutes. I don't know why they wouldn't give him a tracer that always tracks him. This is an important mission. He's going in to save the president. Why does it only track him for 15 minutes? That's point number one. Point number two, why do you have to push the button to be tracked? Just have it always on. If you, What if your hand gets chopped off? You Weren't know? you paying I, attention? It only lasts 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be very judicious about when you decide to turn it on. You can't just walk into a radio shack inside this place and look for a new battery. And here, to me, is the worst of all. Hauk says... They added something, a safety catch. And it's like, whoa. It just, the way he says it, it's like, this is such an enormous innovation. And this is so huge that the, this thing has been changed. The safety catch. Okay, Hauk. I'm going to jump one more because it bothers me even worse because someone took the time to write these lines out. You've got grown men saying these words it wasn't like it was some made up like klingon where who cares he says we'll be able to pick you up on radar now radar only detects objects flying in the air it has to be an object in space that causes a radio wave to be reflected back differently than other radio waves that the computer interprets as something solid is being hit by these radio waves how in the hell does a radio signal show up on radar I would have been like, if I'm Kurt Russell, I mean, okay, I'm not a technician, but I know enough about that that I would be going, wait a minute, this line doesn't make any sense. Why am I saying we can pick you up on radio? Why not? We can pick you up on our scopes. We can pick you up on our detection equipment. We can monitor your progress. Well, how about anything else that makes sense? But no, we'll pick you up on radar. Does this make me suddenly fly? You know, back when I did Flash Gordon Minute with our producer who cannot be heard, Brad Mendenhall, <laughs> we used to occasionally call out what we referred to as lazy script writing, when they're just like, oh, screw it, just put this in, whatever. This, this could be a case of lazy script writing. Uh, radar. It's a techie-sounding word. It sounds like we've got some jargon going on here. Let's just throw, out, throw it out there, and, let the, uh, and we'll just walk right past it. But I can't help it every single time. I've got Lee Van Cleef, a member of special forces. He fought in these wars. He's now the you know, the commissioner of the police force. We're going to pick up your radio signal on radar. It's, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, also considering, you know, Lee Van Cleef was in the Navy and was, you know, on attack subs back in the day. So I would think that would also be something that, you know, from his own personal experience, he would be able to tell his bullshit, but you know, obviously in the Navy, they have a separate thing called sonar, which is once right. again, mm-hmm. waves that pick up objects in water, <laughs> you know, Hey, we're pinging a solid object. 
Okay, good. That's great. We got to pick you up. Uh, you don't pick radio signals up on radar. I just it doesn't work that way. Yeah, if he's he's snake is walking on the ground, they should be following by what seismograph? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's the only one walking in the entire prison uh, prison prison island. Uh, very very faulty logic here. I don't know if you want to call it sloppy writing, sloppy just. Uh, I just want I just every time he says it, and he's and the thing is, you got Lee Van Cleef directed to say this will be a dramatic pose. Don't actually look at him. Put your back and then look over your shoulder and talk to him. And it's almost like, hey, let me tell you how cool this gadget is. We'll be able to track you on radar for 15 minutes. <laughs> like, oh, how do you say that with a straight face? The just dude next to him. Sure, just make sure you flip the safety catch. Yeah, we don't want it going off by mistake. Well, then it makes me wonder, like, were there a lot of problems with that before? Because it seems like this is a real sexy addition to this piece of equipment and snake kind of smiles at that. So I'm like, is there, did there some, was there some like faulty, you know, part with this previously? So yeah, it's really strange. Right. He does. He, 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 after Hauk makes the big exciting reveal about the safety catch, right. He has this smirk that it's sort of like, ah, oh, very clever. <laughs> <laughs> like, thank God someone figured this out. I, I don't know. Maybe yeah. without the safety catch, people were always accidentally pressing the button and being tracked for the 15 minutes and then the 15 minutes are up and they're like, Oh God, now that, why would, now what do I do? I'm screwed. This is terrible. I I went into the prison. I bumped my wrist against the wall. Didn't realize I hit the button. I extract the prisoner and then ah, no more battery. What do I do now? If only there were a safety catch of some kind to keep me from doing that accidentally. I mean, like, do you just keep bumping it when you're in the bathroom? Like you take a piss and you bump it and it goes off. You're like, Oh my God, that's it. Oh, and is it a one-time-only button? Can't you, like, hit it again and turn it off? I, I, I mean, it's only in later on, many, many minutes from now in the movie, it's used just the one time. And the 15 minutes run out, and then that's it. Which, I, again... So you've developed technology. You, you can't even <laughs> press it a second time. It, it's like a throwaway phone. What the hell is the point of this thing? So these wizards of smart have developed such technology that radar can pick up the radio signal... But they can't figure out how to turn it back off if you accidentally turn it on. The answer is a safety latch. And it's a one-time use. And they're only giving him one. He's got all these pouches. Give him a few and stick them in the pouches. Right. You'd think a battery or two. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, we didn't think about that when we welded the battery in there. So I don't know if this is stupid or not, but this is already stupid, so it's cool. Um, Is it possible that they're jamming a lot of frequencies or they have some sort of, I don't know, rules around because they're trying to, you know, keep communication down. You know, this is kind of a black site, you know, is, is maybe some of this related to that. So, you know, we're only going to give you, you know, a, a short window for that reason. You mean to prevent the prisoners from creating like underground radio stations kind of thing like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess like Footloose, but I mean, no, <laughs> <laughs> no dancing. I was or thinking pump just, up the volume. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Um, or, or just communication, you know, to be able yeah. to, to coordinate on the outside for some reason, you know, some some prevention measure. So there's there's more of a lockdown. That's the only thing I can think of that, that would justify this or its limitation. No, I'm going to go back to lazy writing. <laughs> hey, your, Molly, your explanation is better than anything John Carpenter was thinking of. So, 
just trying to throw y'all a bone. <laughs> they knew they needed to create tension later in the movie where you were about to have the timer run out and you had a whole lot of stuff going sideways. And, oh, my God, are they going to be able to find him? Is it going to run out? We only have a 15-minute window. There we go. Instant tension. So that's it. Plot device. Which, yeah. which makes that, that actually makes it even worse because we already have the 24-hour countdown. We already have a countdown clock that, that is the focus of this movie. This is then introducing a separate second, not as long countdown clock. Well, everything keeps getting shorter. It started off 24 hours, then it's 22 hours, and now it's 15 minutes. So, well, it's jumping ahead to 22, but I just, because <laughs> I know the movie. It's like, <laughs> whatever. It's, hey, it, it worked once on paper. Let's try it again. Then, the, then the, they start telling them about uh, a little, we're getting a little bit into the lives of the prisoners in here. Mm-hmm. And... Holy cow, some of these prisoners are geniuses because they've converted the cars to steam-powered. Yeah, I guess we don't want them getting a radio, but we're going to let them have the ability to create, uh, you know, what is it, uh, steampunk cars. And we think they have a gasoline source. Now, I live in New York City. There is no underground oil well anywhere (laughs) underneath the island of Manhattan. That you know (laughs) of. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you so, know the government's not going to tell you if there is either in the escape from new york minute world somehow in the 17 years in between the writing of the movie and when the movie takes place an underground oil well was discovered under manhattan or it's just even more lazy writing because wow if we had fuel under the city here we could really lower our incredibly high gas prices <laughs> uh yeah i think things are just sometimes put in there for convenience sake and they're hoping nobody actually stops to actually ask themselves a question you mean like freaks who would break a movie down minute by minute and talk yeah. about it <laughs> yeah, who would do that that's just <laughs> there's so much else you could be doing why would you do that <laughs> i love the guy whatever uh the cohort Remy? here who just Remy. keeps like my job here is to stare and and look like <laughs> I know what I'm doing. He doesn't say anything. He just he just kind of looks down, looks up, stares, has a cigarette dangling. I look cool, don't I? Remy's so, got a serious habit, man. Every time we've seen Remy, yes. Remy's lighting up. Yes. I'm worried about him. He's really he's got to get into a program or like chew some gum or something cuz like he's not long for this world. Now, in the draft script, this scene plays out a little bit differently. He's first of all, Snake is still in handcuffs when they're giving him the briefing, and they're actually showing him a slideshow of pictures of inside the prison while this is going on. And there is a line here that says, they, the, he's talking about the prisoners, and he says, they split along race and ethnic lines white, black, Chicano, Indian, Oriental, European, and then the rest women, homosexuals, religious, senior citizens, the crazies. Then he refers to the crazies as the criminally insane and having no code, no leaders, no conscious survival system they live to kill. Now, by the time it was the shooting script, they still had this line about how they're divided along the race and ethnic lines. But they had cut that extra info describing the crazies. Snake was then out of cuffs. They're not showing the slides anymore. And I like that. I like that they cut the line about the, describing the crazies because it allows the crazies to just be mentioned here. It's a throwaway line to figure, oh, okay, whatever, the crazies. And then our real introduction to them is when we actually see them after Snake goes into the prison setting up a whole sequence. And, and I, I, that's better. That's the show don't tell that movies are supposed to give you. And the thing about that whole 
ethnic split line is that's not consistent with the Duke's gang. You know, the Duke's gang is is not ethnically split at all. It is a, a very equal society among all races and creeds. So that line doesn't even make sense. Um, I always like going into the script. That's one of the things that I bring to the to the show we do. It, Walt tends to focus on actors and their backgrounds and what other movies we might have seen them in, where they came from. Um, I always try to get the script, and, and I love seeing what directors decide either in the editing suite when they realize it doesn't work or when they get on set and decide to rearrange things because it just what worked on paper doesn't seem to be working for the location. I love seeing that. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's cool to keep doing that, to keep going back. For me as a listener, I love stuff like that. You hear that, listeners? <laughs> Hello? Is this thing on? <laughs> like that scene in Lego Movie. Look at how big my brain is. I must be smart. <laughs> There's nothing in here, but it goes on forever. <laughs> um, did you notice when Snake and uh, Van Cleef here come walking around the corner, how he's got the belt on, he's wearing the revolver on the left hip, he's wearing the other pouch, which looks like the scope or, or in, in the front of that uh, other holster, and he's got, I don't know, if the, I can't tell if it's the Uzi, but he's definitely got something loaded in it. I know I'm not going to be able to talk about it in the next minutes, but he's already got his jacket off here. So I think you should leave that as a something to think about as you move forward down this hallway. I always I always look for continuity errors too. I'm just one of those things that just pops out at me because I know he's about to go get a medical procedure. Yeah, yeah. Next week yeah. he's going to meet a certain doctor who's going to do do a certain something to him. Hey, are those zippers on the shoulders of his uh, shirt? They are. <laughs> and so, I'm going to say just like just for a moment before you go into that, that in rewatching this, I was like, God, there's something about that shirt that's familiar. And it's because I own that shirt. What? I do. It's it's slightly like I have a little bit more of a slopey neck to it, but I will take a picture of myself in that. It's one of my favorite shirts. And I don't know what that means about me, <laughs> but I really, I really dig it. I mean, it looks great on him. It probably looks better on him than it does on me, honestly. But yeah, I legitimately have a black shirt with gold zippers in the exact same location, that short sleeve. So then you can answer my question. Why are there zippers there? Because it's fashion. It's decoration. (laughs) They serve no function, in other words. No, they don't. Well, it's aesthetically pleasing. Hey, don't forget, this is the heyday of Michael Jackson. Zippers are cool. When it came out in 1981. So, oh, yeah. You know, if you think about it, I'm, I'm surprised somebody's not walking around with just a glove on one hand. <laughs> no sparkles here either, which is also a bit of a shame. Um, side note, but like related, I know we've brought up the proliferation of the logo, the uh, USPF logo, and it shows up yet again in this minute, 19 seconds in, which is just right over Remy's shoulder. So again, they really do like to brand everything. Yep, I see it. Eh, just plop it up there on the wall. Why not? And, in case and, you forgot. <laughs> yeah, and, and on the same wall, by the way, a map, a world map. I don't know why a prison in New York City needs a map of the entire wall world up on the wall, but there it is. Oh, maybe you got to know where all your prisoners are coming from. Maybe they're, <laughs> they're branching out. They're, you know... They can make some money if you can take your prisoners hand, you know, take unload prisoners from other countries. I don't know. It does feel like a more of a war room, like you would expect this if this was the the military operation that they're talking about the ongoing war, and you still would have forces here or there. Doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to have these various tactical maps or, or world maps, but then you've got 
other maps behind them all just sort of, I'm going to guess set decoration, but <laughs> maybe they were hoping we wouldn't slow this down one minute at a time and stare. And now we talked in a previous minute about Lee Van Cleef's lifelong injury and how by this age his, his limping was bad. And it's very pronounced in the last 10 seconds or so of this scene, of this minute when they show him and Snake walking down the hall. It's very obvious that he's limping there. Yeah. And he, Van Cleef actually said that this scene, because of the limp, this was the hardest shot that he had to film in the movie. Just like the repetitive walking? Yes. Or, yeah, because oh. of the, yeah, the repetitive walking. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. Hey, I don't know if I didn't notice this before, but right around second 56, you've got a police commissioner. When he turns his head, we see he's wearing a hoop earring in his left ear. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. That's the first time I noticed that. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's a hip police commissioner, Mr. Rule Follower. I swear to God, I know he wouldn't have looked this way in 1981, but when I look at Lee Van Cleef in this movie, and then I catch what John Carpenter looks like now, I swear you, that's that's a that's what John Carpenter looks like to me now. What Lee Van Cleef pretty much looks like. Oh yeah, I can see that. It's like a little bit more hair. <laughs> it makes you wonder if, if John Carpenter's like, am I looking at my future self? <laughs> Well, did he? The question is, did he look like that by 1997? Oh, oh that's deep. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you're a big fan of the music. We get actually, we do get our next song from the soundtrack in this minute. This song is called "Orientation." Here in minute 21, there's something almost all the time. There's there's that rhythmic pulsation in so many of the John Carpenter themes and music that just makes you feel almost. It's, it reminds me a lot of how John Williams described when he came up with the concept for Jaws, when he had the two notes and Steven Spielberg said, oh, that's cute, ha, ha, ha. And he goes, no, no, it's just basically it's two notes, but it's a, it, 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 it gives you the sense of nonstop driving, mechanical. It's almost like it's a force you can't stop. And then I keep thinking the same thing every time I hear a John Carpenter soundtrack. It's like there's some force or there's some unexplained entity or power or thing that's going to keep driving at you or coming at you or pushing through the story. And I, I've always thought about how those seem to be parallels to me about this idea of geez, these pulsating similar notes repeating. That's interesting. Yeah, I actually find like the steady rhythm to be kind of soothing. Oh, I, don't, I don't know that it's, it's jarring. I just always hear it as driven, like something, something's coming either at you or something's powering through, like there's some force moving whether it's the force of Kurt Russell in the, or you know fighting the clock or whether it's in the thing, not knowing who's what, when it's Christine chasing somebody down, when it's the fog rolling in. I mean, there's so many movies where that theme of something pressing in or pushing or just it's musically, to me, I hear the same thing. Like, that's what the music means to me. Mm, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I think it's interesting because now I'm like thinking of all these different you know, uh, pieces of media that you mentioned and that there is always this very uniform beat, you know, some of that is due to the electronica nature of it, but yeah, there's a, there's a uniform nest to it. Um, I, I think he sets mood really well in that regard. I mean, even Halloween where you've got the faster music, but underneath you've got the repeating very low ominous notes that repeat very low and slow. And it really mirrors 
the fact that you've got the psychopath who just won't stop. He keeps coming and he keeps coming and he keeps coming. And I, I just, again, it's this, this rhythmic thing that he brings into the music that just, and it goes with his movies so well. I mean, oh, yeah. it's perfect. Yeah, it's relentless. Yes, it's a relentless beat. Yeah. I can only tell you this. I must have been a Kurt Russell fan for as long as I've been alive because I remember him in being the boy in Gilligan's Island. And then I remember oh him God. in Disney movies when I was growing up where he was uh, the strong... What was it? I can't remember the name of the movie where he had to lift all of this weight, the strongest kid in the world or something. And he's been one of those child actors that managed to become the adult and then own every role to the point where I just realized I have... I've always been a Kurt Russell fan. I don't know that I have not liked Kurt. I may not have thought the movie was good, but I've always liked Kurt Russell. That's awesome. Yeah. I see a lot of parallels. I'm, I'm a Tombstone fan. Oh, I really dig that movie. Yeah. Oh my God. I really see this character as a precursor to that in a lot of ways, which I won't get into because we're kind of at the tail end here, maybe for a future minute. But um, I see a lot of, I see a lot of parallels there. You can leave everybody with an epic long lasting minute. <laughs> I, uh, I'm such a huge fan of Tombstone, and what's cool, tying it back to our podcast, we actually had a military, a cowboy historian on our show who was friends with Kevin Jar, who wrote the script to Tombstone. Oh, and cool. Kevin Jar was actually set to direct the film, uh, my friend Jim Dunham, who's a gun trick artist, and he used to be in Hollywood, and he did a bunch of uh, fast draws and things like that, was in the film for about a week when they decided to fire Kevin Jar because they didn't think he had a sense of making an action-y cowboy movie. And so they brought in George Cosmatis in to be sort of that action-y director, but the real story, and they waited till George Cosmatis died, Kurt Russell really directed that movie. He stayed up with George, thinking about every shot, everything they wanted to do, how they wanted it to flow. And so that was a passion project of Kurt Russell's, and it is one of my all-time favorite Westerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I Just everything about it. I mean, I love Val Kilmer in it, too. Um, uh, it's Sam Neill. Um, also great. Um, uh, I don't think it was, I don't think it was Sam. Is it Sam, not Sam Neill. Sorry. Um, I'm talking about um, um, Sam. Oh, oh. Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott. Sam thank Elliott. You. There you go. Sam That's Elliott. Thank you. Yeah. Sam Who was Neill that? Was... Who the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a voice from afar. <laughs> Ignore it. It's just the wind. <laughs> careful with my last movie we did there was a big breaking wind scene so <laughs> oh no that's right <laughs> sam elliott thank you wind uh sam elliott uh bill paxton yeah I, it's just got a hell of a cast to it yeah it's 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 magnificent and um and one of my all-time favorites in that is um oh not not uh oh crap what's his name uh, it was in terminator uh michael bean i love Johnny Ringo. Oh, my God. Such a good actor, too. So just a great cast. Ugh. If you're a fan of Kurt Russell and New York, Escape from New York, go check out Tombstone. <laughs> There's another recommendation from two of us. We've been uh, recommendation laden <laughs> this, this particular week. Eric's like, I thought I had control. I thought I was winding it down. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you, got, you guys don't even realize that um, it turns out my I, I lost you guys for about a minute and you didn't even realize i was gone oh oh, that's why we had such good conversation how that was great molly that's awesome <laughs> i thought you were oddly quiet i, I know I, I felt weird <laughs> i kept i felt like i, I had asking, overstayed my welcome i kept asking a question about john carpenter's music and i was like why in the hell are they not responding to me and i realized oh. 
My mic, my mic dropped out. The beauty oh. of this episode now is you're going to go back and go, oh, that's what they were talking about. <laughs> oh, no, I heard you. You couldn't hear me. Oh, okay. Because he was in the background going, why don't they shut up? I keep saying stop. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, okay, so th- there's my wrap-ups. That's it. Sorry. Kurt Russell. Love him. Eric, did you have anything that you wanted to add in since uh, you were uh, <laughs> conspicuously absent? <laughs> all, I, all I was going to say, uh, and now that it's like five minutes later and people have already probably <laughs> forgotten that this point was being made, was when you both were discussing John Carpenter's musical style, I, I was trying to inject whether John Carpenter's music could be used for ASMR. What's ASMR? Okay, I'm, yeah, I'm, I could tell by the silence that uh, I'm on my own here. So it stands for Auto- Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, and it's something that lately has been getting sort of more and more mentions, and it's something that it could be a sound, or it could even be some kind of a touch that creates a tingling sensation that runs down the spine typically it'll start like at the top of the head run down the back and the spine and a lot of the things are sounds like this people talking sort of like this oh Oh. Oh. (laughs) interesting so that's where we do the npr voice yes think of it like the npr voice but creepy so yeah coming up next when we talk kurt russell do you like his hair do you like it long do you like it short so, you know, After picture, you know, picture <laughs> John Carpenter's, you know, someone might, that could be ASMR for someone. You never know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I never knew the term for that. That's interesting. Me neither. Thank you for educating us. We learned something today. I, fe- I felt so left out. <laughs> I recommend, there you go, there's my recommendation, everyone. Go try something that gives you ASMR. I'm going to go upstairs with my wife. Hey, honey, let's try this. I hear that if you talk the right way, it's going to cause a tingling from my scalp going all the way down my spine. And she's like, nice try, I'm going to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. You need to try that at book club night. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how is it? I I get left all alone except for when I need the pick up and drop off. Anyway, I'm like the Russian. I'm the Russian so- chauffeur. Pick up and drop off. Oh no! Refer to yourself as Cabby. No, come on. We're doing Escape from New York. You can be Cabby. Cabby. There you go. I be Ornest Borgnine. <laughs> I got Snake Pliskin in my cab. <laughs> God. Oh, what a great movie. What a fun movie this is. You know what? No matter what, for, for whatever flaws we pointed out in this minute, this is a fun movie. It, it, it's just a fun one to watch. And I remember as a kid, just in general, thinking I had never seen anything like this, where it felt like there was always these no way out, no escape. You know, not until I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. To me, this was like the precursor. It was, how was he going to get out of this? What's going to happen next? How does he fight his way through this? It just felt like... I had never seen that kind of movie in this kind of setting before. Now, there may have been others, but this was my introduction into that sort of futuristic action-type movie. Yeah, doesn't this even predate Terminator? Yep, Terminator was 83 or 84. Yeah, yeah. So this really was. This was a was a huge vanguard for the time. Well, cool, guys. Alan, thank you so much for joining this week. This has been a blast. Awesome. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, one more time, can you let uh, all the folks out in the interwebs know where they can find you in podcast land? Yeah, sure. We're Our show, uh, me and my co-host, Walt Murray, we do a show called The Wilder Ride, where we look at the films of Gene Wilder one minute at a time. For season one, we did Young Frankenstein. By the time uh, this is wrapping up, we are doing uh, in the midst of Blazing Saddles, so we will probably have finished up season two. Um, one thing I just want to add, I know we've got a Facebook and a Twitter and an Instagram. It's very easy to find, just the Wilder Ride. I want to do a plug for it, not only this podcast, but all of the podcasts that, folks, if you're listening, take a second, leave a comment on your podcatcher of choice. We all would like to get higher ratings and have people find us. And you know what? It's just nice to know what people think of the show. So take a second. It doesn't take more than a minute or two. And just leave us a rating. Leave a rating here for Escape from New York. If you've got other podcasts you listen to, leave, leave us a comment and a rating. It, just, it really helps us, uh, others find us, and it's just kind of cool to hear from you. Cool, cool. And as far as Escape from New York Minute, you can follow us at Twitter, at NY Minute Pod. Um, also, we're on Facebook, and there's a Facebook group, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And if you need even more podcast goodness, you can check out some of our other previous podcast projects. Uh, Eric and Brad Mendenhall, who is our producer, uh, we're on Flash Gordon Minute. Um, that's also through Growler Media, which is growlermedia.com. You can also check out my former podcast, Cabin Minute Cast, which is about Cabin in the Woods, and that's at cabinminutecast.com. Uh, Brad also has a really sweet pop culture podcast called Cosmic Geppetto, and you can find them at cosmicgeppetto.com. And with all that... Be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.